Uh, Father God, we can do nothing without your Spirit. I cannot speak a word of truth, and we cannot receive your truth without his help. And so we do pray that you would help me and you would help all of us this morning, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. Amen. Amen. You will have uh, noticed, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that the Holy Spirit is not so much uh, a doctrine as a battleground. On the one side, you've got uh, those who look at conservative evangelical churches and just see it dry and undevotional, uh, sound but soundly asleep. You know, there's no sign of life on a Sunday as you look at the congregation. On the other side, uh, people look at charismatic churches and think it's just over-emotional and it's all a bit wacky and weird, people falling over all over the place and at the end of the service you have to say, hands down, who wants coffee because everybody's got their hands in. <laughs> and it, you know, we, just, we basically stand on one side or the other lobbing bricks at each other uh, about what well, view of the Holy Spirit is. And you're either clenched or you're drenched. That's it. Clenched or drenched. And we, we view each other that way. My guess is that a lot of us here will have strongly held opinions about the Holy Spirit. And I doubt very much indeed that anybody will agree with every word I say this weekend. And in one sense I'm not fussed about that. Uh, All I ask is that we look at what the Bible says together and we try to examine who the Holy Spirit is and what his ministry is in the light of Scripture rather than in the light of my upbringing, my prejudices or my previous church cultures. Uh, There'll be plenty of time for questions, plenty of time to thrash through things, but please just uh, do listen to the end of the talks and please do think carefully in the light of what the Bible says. I guess there will be others of us here, though, who can't see what all the fuss is about. We see all the arguments and we hear all the fights and we think, why do we... You know, I trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't it enough? Do I really need to, you know, to have a position on all these things? Do Do I have to work out what I think about tongues? You know, it just seems to cause arguments. Why do I need to know about this if I trust in Jesus? Isn't that enough? And there's a quotation from uh, Jim Packer, who is a conservative theologian, at the top of um, the first talk, that explains why every single one of us has to, has to, has to understand this. And why we will be in desperate trouble as Christians if we do not get a serious grip on who the Spirit is and what he does. Packer writes, the Christian life in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship and outgoing in witness, is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So apart from him, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregations, there will be no believers and no congregations at all. You and I really need to work out who the Spirit is and what he does, if we're to Not to be advanced Christians, but to be Christians at all. And that being so, given how foundational and central and crucial the Holy Spirit is, the most important question, the life-changing question, starts with, what is the Holy Spirit the answer to? So I'll only understand what the Bible says if if I understand what question is being answered in the Bible when the answer is the Holy Spirit. What question is being asked when the answer is the Holy Spirit. Let me try and get us into it um, this way. Imagine you're sat around a campfire in Galilee. Uh, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, you're going to have to stretch your imaginations a little bit. Um, you're one of the twelve. You're above the Sea of Galilee. You've been following Jesus for about three years now. You have never, ever met anybody like him. Someone with the power to, to calm storms with a word. 
Someone with such gentleness and compassion with idiots and sinners. A man who is so holy that he terrifies you even to be near him and yet so forgiving and loving and accepting that you find yourself just drawn to him. And you've started to realise he's not just the, the Messiah of the Old Testament, as amazing as that is. He's not just the holiest man who ever walked the earth. He is the God of the Old Testament. The God of fire and thunder and Mount Sinai in a human body. And then he says, as he's poking the fire with a stick one night, I'm going back to heaven to be with my father. It's an absolute bombshell. Can you imagine what that would have done to the twelve? Would you? You can't go. How on earth? What do you mean you're going back? There's only twelve of us. Nothing's. We're no one yet. You've 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 hardly even started anything. You can't go back to heaven now. I mean, how are we going to remember the stuff you've taught us? Who's going to lead us? Uh, you know, Peter keeps standing up and saying the stupidest things imaginable. How on earth are, are we ever going to take your truth forward when he's around? And you know, somebody, you know, Judas. I don't know what's going on with him. I mean, Jesus, how can you go? You know, who's going to stop us fighting? Who's going to uh, help us? Who's going to who's going to convince people of the truth about you when you look at us? I mean, what have we got to offer? And Jesus says, "Don't worry. I'm going." but I'm going to send my spirit and he is going to be everything for you that I have been but he will be those things in and through you. I will be with you by my spirit in you. And then we read these absolutely extraordinary words at the beginning of Acts 1. There's so many amazing things happening in Acts that you can easily skip over these words and miss the just the devastating, revolutionary nature of what's said. Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. Acts, it's very easy to read the, the Bible wrongly. Read. The Old Testament is the story of God the Father, Gospels, Jesus, Acts, and the rest is about the Spirit. That is just heretical that it burns us at the stake for believing that in many centuries they'd have been right to do so. Um, but let's not get on to those sort of extreme views. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I don't really, anyway, um, I don't really mean it. Um, Acts is the history of Jesus continuing to do his mission. It's not like Jesus is uh, punched out, you know, like a tag team thing, and it's the Spirit's job now, and he's sat doing nothing. Acts is everything that he continued to do. Only now he operates not physically in his body on the earth, but by his spirit through his followers on the earth. It is the history of his continued mission. It's the history of lives transformed. It's the history of churches planted. It's the history of weak and frail men and women standing up in the face of unbelievable odds and persecution and triumphing. It's the history of God setting the world ablaze with the message of Jesus through his spirit working through ordinary people. And that same spirit is the spirit that dwells in each and every one of us here this weekend. And that same spirit empowers our church and our mission. The Holy Spirit is Christ. Not here physically with us as a man, but here with us, indwelling us. God in us, not just God with us. Christ in us, not just with us. And that is why it is, Jesus says, it is better for you that I go back to the Father. 
And that is a verse I've never believed in my life. How can you say better? I mean, having Jesus, that'd be awesome, having Jesus actually physically with you. You don't believe in God? Ta-da! I mean, what, what couldn't you do with Jesus with you? Better than Jesus with us, we have Jesus in us. Uh, there's a very simple summary. It's uh, Any simple thing misses out some things that I've put on the sheet. And at the four talks, we'll, we'll look at each of these lines in turn. Uh, the ho- uh, what, who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. The Holy Spirit brings us to life in Christ by, the re- by revealing Christ's word to us to empower us to serve like Christ and change us to be more like Christ. Do you see how he is the Spirit of Christ, not separate from Christ, but Christ's Spirit carrying on Christ's work in Christ's world through Christ's people. And we'll see what that means through each of the four talks. Before we, uh, before we actually launch into the first of those points about how he brings us to life, uh, just two quick um, things by way of introduction. You'll see immediately the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. This is not Star Wars. He is not the Force. He is God. He can be grieved, prayed to, love. He is God, personal. God is Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All equally God, all equally personal. So uh, you can pray to the Spirit, you can grieve him, but you must not think of him as an it. It He is a he. Secondly, the Spirit has a unique role though, just as the Father and the Son have unique roles. And the Spirit is God at work in us and in the world. God at work in us and in the world. Or to put it another way, here's the explanation for Acts 4.13. Flick up Acts 4.13. So, um, the Jewish council are feeling pretty chuffed with themselves at this stage. The leaders of the the people of God have uh, put Jesus to death. End of problem. They're breathing a sigh of relief, uh, gathered, feeling probably slightly odd about the whole thing, when they hear a commotion outside and find that two of his disciples who'd run away in fear a month or so beforehand are now preaching that Jesus is risen from the dead. And what's worse, they're kind of healing people with a power that you can only attribute to God, which is extraordinarily awkward and inconvenient if you just put Jesus to death. And this is what happens. Uh, Listen to what happens in Acts 4, 8 um, to 13. Then Peter, so they pull in Peter and John before them, say, what on earth do you think you're doing? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Then crucially, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They weren't astonished with Peter when he was legging it out of the courtyard while Jesus was on trial. Why are they astonished at him now? Because now he is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's first and most fundamental work is to bring us to life. And that life is the astonishing, awesome power of God in us. It is what made ordinary people extraordinary. It's what made wimps courageous. It's what made weak men powerful. Because it's the power of Christ at work in his people. 
And the first thing he has to do is bring it to life. If you turn back to the very beginning of the Bible, you see the Spirit is involved in the creation. God the Father initiates it. And he creates John 1 by the Word, Jesus Christ. And Genesis 1-2, the Spirit hovers over, broods over the formless creation. He is involved in bringing of life right at the start. And then uh, in the climax of creation as mankind is created, Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed, that word is spirited, he spirited into his nostrils the spirit of life and the man became a living being. God's breath, God's spirit, turns lifeless dust into living Adam. That is who the spirit is. He is the spirit who brings us to life. The problem is, you and I are dead. Not physically. Actually, looking out early on a Saturday morning, you have a great analogy. Technically, you're all alive. A number of us look rather dead this morning. A number of us feel rather dead. But spiritually, there is a far more serious death. Spiritually, as humans, we are naturally, utterly dead. And God warned in uh, Genesis 2.17 that the physical death that came into creation as a result of sin is symbolic of the spiritual death that one day will be an eternal death cut off from all the life and goodness and blessing of God and now Ephesians 2.1 says of all humanity we are dead in our transgressions and sins not sick, not struggling not less than our full potential but dead and Ezekiel has this amazing image in the Old Testament that we read there they are, the people, going about living their ordinary lives, commuting to work with their coffee, going to the gym, planning holidays, eating dinner, worrying about the rent. And God takes Ezekiel out into a desert, into a valley where there's been a great battle hundreds of years before. And now all that's left are bones, bleached, dry bones, crunching under his feet as he walks around, glinting in the sun as far as the eye can see, just bones. Not even sinew, nothing but bones. And he says, this, spiritually, is what the people of the world look like to me. That is God's verdict. Physically, they may be alive and going around doing all the human things. Spiritually, they are a valley of dry bones. And you see, our decaying bodies are just a symptom of a deeper moral problem. If spiritual life is loving and delighting in God and loving one another, then <laughs> who of us can deny that we're dead? If spiritual life is to love and delight and worship the God who made me and to love other people who are made in his image, then we humans are dead as we love ourselves and live for ourselves. We're helpless as the bodies in a morgue and as dead as the bones in that valley as Ezekiel saw. But something happens uh, at the end of Ezekiel's vision. Uh, something brings the bones to life. And actually, it's not a something, it's a someone. And I'm not talking about Ezekiel. Actually, if you turn back to Ezekiel 37, you will see that it is the Holy Spirit who is involved. God breathes. God calls on Ezekiel to prophesy, to preach, to proclaim. And then he breathes the same word, ruach, breath, spirit. And as he breathes, there is a rattling sound. Can you imagine what it would have sounded like? All those bones rattling and rattling and they're knitted together in the valley and they stand up, these skeletons. And then the sinew and the flesh and the skin appears and covers them. And these dead cadavers are floating above the ground in the valley and then finally he says, preach the word and the spirit comes to them. 
and there'd have been this great sound as thousands of dead lifeless bodies took in breath into their lungs and came back to life and that vision of Ezekiel is the background to perhaps the most famous passage in the New Testament the foundational passage of the Holy Spirit John 3 as we learn there that the Holy Spirit makes us alive in Christ Uh, you'll know um, flick up John 3 uh, in the New Testament You'll know the background. Uh, Jesus is speaking to a um, religious leader, Nicodemus, who's confused about what Jesus is teaching. And the heart of Jesus' revolutionary message to Nicodemus is, it doesn't matter how religious you are, it doesn't matter how much good stuff you do, you are dead, and there is nothing that you can do to change that. You need something from outside, someone from outside. You need God by his Spirit to bring you new life, new birth, if you are to live. So we'll pick it up at verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You'll recognise that, that phrase, the water and the spirit, coming from Ezekiel 36. It's so clearly the background to this passage. And then there are three crucial points that Jesus makes about new birth. That you can, uh, the background, you can have no relationship with God, no part of his kingdom, no spiritual life, unless he brings you to new birth through the spirit. Uh, three crucial things. Firstly, it's something that happens to us. It's not something we can do ourselves. You've got to be born again. And verse 5 makes it clear why. Flesh, sorry, verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. See, a spiritually dead human being cannot produce spiritual life. We can only make things like ourselves. Um, there's a royal baby apparently going to be born at some point soon. I have no idea what the baby's going to look like. I hope it doesn't look anything like Prince Harry's, all I'm saying. Um, but, um, the, uh, <laughs> but I can guarantee that... Uh, the baby will not look like a hippopotamus or a frog or a giraffe because humans give birth to humans which is great but it's a bit of a disaster if what you really want is spiritual life because we cannot give birth to produce spiritual life spiritually dead people can't do that it's a supernatural work a miracle that requires the power of the spirit of God There's no point in telling people, here's a load of things for you to do. I don't need that, I'm dead. I need something done to me, not something for me to do. So, uh, it's something that happens to us. Secondly, it um, comes through the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Water in Ezekiel is forgiveness, being washed clean. And then the Spirit is talking about the new life that we need. We need our sins washed away and we need new life put into us if we're to be God's people. And then thirdly, look at, um, jump ahead to verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. But it does appear to contradict verse 5. Verse 5, uh, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Verse 16, how are you saved? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, what is it, John? Does eternal life, spiritual life, come from being born of the Spirit or by believing in Jesus? Which is it? Well, obviously, it's both. And it's not different stages either. It's just the same event looked at 
from a different point of view, different perspective. From one angle, you started asking questions about God. Perhaps you saw a friend whose life you couldn't really explain, or you were raised in a Christian home, and suddenly at some point as a teenager, you started to wonder whether this was real or just what your parents believed. And you wrestled with it, you weighed up the cost of following Jesus, you looked at whether it was true. And eventually, eventually you decided Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you put your trust in him. From another perspective, you were dead, and God breathed his life into you. Both are true. From one perspective, you wrestle with the question of, can I trust in Jesus? From another perspective, a skeleton was breathed onto by God, and flesh appeared, and the heart started pumping. Both are just different perspectives on the same event. But one amazes us slightly more than the other. The sinful self was killed. God brought a corpse to life. And God breathed in a love for him and a sacrificial love for other people. It's an extraordinary thing that God did. Uh, talking of God's word, there is one final perspective. Uh, 1 Peter one twenty three tells us, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. It's just a reminder that how we believe in Jesus is through his word. It is as the message of Jesus comes to us that the spirit of God enters us and our trust comes into Jesus Christ. Okay, we're born again through the Holy Spirit as we put our trust in the Jesus of the Bible. And you see how the Trinity is in action there in John 3. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but so perfectly united that he is one God. The Father loves us, so in spite of our sin, he sends his precious Son to die for us. And the Spirit brings us to new life, enabling us to trust in this Son of God who died for us. There is just something beautiful about the way that God works, about the Trinity. There's a harmony, a partnership, a cooperation. In all the diversity and difference, in all the hierarchy of God the Father being the head, there is yet still a beautiful equality and a unity. No ego, no jockeying for position, no hogging the limelight. There is just delight-filled obedience, even to death, and perfect love and enjoyment. Okay, so far so good. That is the theory. That's as much theory as I want to really get through in this first session. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life who brings you and me to life in Christ. But so what? So what? Firstly, if we get this, we will marvel greatly. God took dead bones, properly dead bones. Go some point to something like one of the to a museum in London and look at a skeleton. And when you do, remind yourself that is what I was when God came to me. And now, 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. That is not the sort of information I should just be able to process and file. <laughs> you need to remember, it is not that, uh, you know, there was a spark of spiritual life in me, but I was quenching it, and I wasn't living to my full potential. And God enabled me just to to grow and to move towards the light when I was really living in the darkness. Now, I was dead and God made me alive. It's not that, um, I just, I guess I didn't really understand fully how good God is and, uh, you know, I was, um, 
I wouldn't say I was totally rejecting God, but I just I wasn't living a you know a life where I was really knowing who Jesus was. And then I came to understand things a lot more fully. And as my understanding grew, um, I guess I, I really did realise who Jesus is. Now I was an enemy of God. I was a skeleton, dead in the ground, buried. And God breathed life and brought me out of the ground and made me His. It is a radical, transformative, miraculous work. It's so easy to allow the process, the human process, to blind us to the spiritual reality. We were dead, but God made us alive. And this weekend would be a great time to spend time thinking, discussing, meditating, marvelling at each other's stories. Uh, Ask each other, how did you become a Christian? And praise God for both the human story and the spiritual reality behind it. God has done a miracle in your life. And that should give you great joy and great faith. The power in you is not the power to make something that was already there a bit better. Not the power to just nudge you back in the right direction. It was the power to take you dead and make you alive. And that power is pumping in your heart, running through your veins, causing you to turn from sin and to love God and to live for others. Marvel at the power of God. The second thing I want to say is that you have been baptised in the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I'm going to get into something slightly controversial here. Please hear me out before you um, uh, throw things at me. Um, (laughs) uh, So, a movement developed in the 1960s that said that you become a Christian by trusting in Christ, but to live a full Christian life, you need to be baptised in the Spirit, because that's when you receive the Spirit in fullness. And I would guess a number here have been baptised in the Spirit at some point. So, I was as a um, late teenager, and I bet a number of others have been. But there are two vital things I want you to understand about um, baptism in the Spirit. It is unbiblical and you don't need it. And it works. It's unbiblical and you don't need it. And it works. Uh, Let me explain. (laughs) Uh, You do not need to be baptised in the Holy Spirit because if you trust in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. So Colossians 2.10 We are full. We have the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. We lack, the whole letter of Colossians is written to tell us you lack nothing if you trust in Jesus Christ. Nothing. You couldn't trust in Jesus Christ unless the Spirit brought you to life. It is impossible to trust in Christ unless the Holy Spirit has come upon you and brought you to life and is indwelling you. It is ridiculous to say you need the Spirit later on when you could never have put your trust in Christ without the Spirit in you to start with. Romans 8, 9-10 says that having the Spirit in you is the same as having Christ in you. So unless you can become a Christian without having Christ, Romans 8, 9-10, you can't become a Christian and not have the Spirit. That's the logic of Romans 8, 9-10. Unless you can have the Spirit, uh, unless you can be a Christian without having Christ, you can't be a Christian without having the Spirit. And when we turn to the Bible, we find that Spirit baptism is not actually mentioned in any New Testament letter. Not one as they tell the churches how to operate. Now, it is dealt with um, in, a, in three places, basically, in Acts, or four places. Um, Acts 1.8 explains the three great stages of the spread of the gospel. Uh, you will be my witnesses, and you will go out and make disciples in Jerusalem, amongst the Jews, in Judea and Samaria, so amongst the half-Jews of the, the northern tribes, and the rest of the world, Gentiles, like uh, many here this morning. In fact, I think we've probably got representatives of all those groups. And each time the gospel breaks out for the first time into one of those places, 
the Spirit only comes when an apostle from Jerusalem is there. So in Acts 2, obviously they're all gathered together. Then, when the, Spirit, when the Gospel goes into Judea and Samaria in Acts 6-8, to it's only when Peter goes down that the Holy Spirit comes on them. And then again, when it's uh, the, the Gentiles and Joppa, it's only when, the, when the, the, the Apostle from Jerusalem comes that the Spirit falls on them. So why is that? Well, the point being made is that the only Jesus is the Jesus preached by the Apostles. And the Spirit only comes through the Jesus preached by the Apostles. So Christianity was not to be a, a pick-and-mix religion like the ancient world where you hear this message about Jesus, it doesn't matter what Jesus, you make your own Jesus up. No, the only Jesus is the Jesus of the Apostles. And the Spirit comes through that Jesus. So that's, what, that's what's being guarded. But it's the only time you see it happen when the, when the, um, the Spirit, the Gospel, breaks through a new barrier in those three stages, Ju- Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and all the earth. Never again. There's one other instance, but it's people who've not heard the message about Jesus. It's John the Baptist's disciples who don't even know there's a resurrection. But everywhere else, it's assumed that if you've been converted, you have the Spirit. And it's never mentioned in the New Testament letters about how to run a church. Never at all. So, whether you hear about Jesus through a message preached in person by the Apostle Peter 14 years after Jesus died, or whether you hear about Jesus through the book of Mark, written um, at Peter's narration 2,014 years after the resurrection of Jesus, it doesn't make any difference. You receive the same spirit through the same message of the same Jesus. You do not lack anything. Galatians 3.2 Receive the spirit by trusting in the promise. So don't let anybody tell you you lack the Holy Spirit because you haven't had a ritual that the Bible never calls for. It is completely unnecessary, but it works. And here's what I mean. You see, the sad truth is that most of us, many of us, are completely blind to and ignorant of the real power of the Spirit in us. We live our lives, even as Christians, under our own strength. And that's a particular danger in a church like ours where many of us are pretty competent people. We can do a lot by our own strength. And so we can go a long way ignoring the Spirit and blind to his power. So we live our lives under our own strength with no evidence of his supernatural work. And for many people, although uh, spirit baptism may not be something that appears in the Bible, it was when they were baptised in the Spirit that they woke up and that they changed. It's, um, imagine this. Um, imagine you spent your whole life walking, everyday walking, always walking, up hills, down hills, on the flat, walking, always walking. It's pretty tiring. And then one day this guy called Jesus turns up and he gives you a very big heavy bike. And you oh, thank you Jesus. And it's wonderful on the downhill. But it makes life a bit harder pushing it uphill. But, you know, Jesus gave it to you. So you push this bike along. And then six months later, a friend comes up and says, What on earth are you doing? He sees you slogging up this hill, pushing this great heavy bike. What are you doing? Jesus gave me this bike, so I'm pushing it up the hill. And he walks over and says, You never thought to. Turns the key. <laughs> oh, that changes everything. Off you go. Your friend didn't give you the motorbike, Jesus did. Your friend just said, you idiot, and turned the key. And that's, to be honest, I think when I look at the Bible and I look at experience, that is what happens uh, with spirit baptism. We've always had the power of the Spirit, we're just idiots. It's often the case in the Christian life that we're idiots. And we need something to wake us up and turn the key. But I don't think we should use a ceremony that's not called for in the Bible. What we should do is learn to trust the truth of the Bible 
and live it out. So don't, don't go get baptised in the Spirit. Instead, start living out what is true already and start trusting what has always been yours if you believe in Jesus Christ. The power is always there. It's going to be hard to believe. Look at me. I mean, seriously, look at me. Does it look like the power of Almighty God dwells in me? Yeah, not just me. Look at yourself in the mirror first thing in the morning. <laughs> Do I look indwelt by the awesome God of the universe? Do I feel indwelt by the awesome God of the universe? After four double espressos, yes. <laughs> but right now, no. We look no different, we feel no different, and we struggle to believe our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. But we need to trust God, not to have some new ceremony. I guess that takes me to the final thing I want to say, which is expect much more. Which always feels like a risk. I mean, what if nothing happens? Um, But the Bible is true. And the promise that the Holy Spirit lives in us must be a bankable promise. It's made by God. And he never lies. Now, we'll think in more detail over the next few sessions about what specifically the Bible promises. You know, he doesn't promise me I can fly if I want to. That's not evidence of the Holy Spirit. But I must take God at his word and if I do, I will expect more from life and I will live more boldly and recklessly, trusting that the Spirit is real and I can do what God tells me to. <coughs> right now, though, I want to, um, before we think in the next few sessions about the specifics, there's an uncomfortable question to dwell on uh, that Francis Chan puts in his book, Forgotten God. He says this, we are not all we were made to be when everything in our lives and churches can be explained apart from the work and presence of the Spirit of God. And this is the question for us as individuals and as a church. How much about me and the way I live as a Christian, how much about us as a church cannot be explained by our sum total of our human abilities? and has to be put down to the Spirit of God. It's easy to sit and nod our heads. It's easy to sing songs and say creeds that talk about the power of the Holy Spirit and the mighty workings of God. But people who believe that, people who surrender themselves to the Spirit, they go and take the Gospel to countries where they might have their heads cut off. Or they go and take the Gospel to countries where no one might be converted for 40 years, but they'll just plug away. They risk their jobs, they risk their lives, they risk their financial security. (coughs) And the truth is, every one of us, if we're honest, is a bit afraid of what it might mean to really open ourselves to the Spirit's leading and to live in His power. But, don't you want more? I mean, who here would say, you know what, I've experienced all that I would want to experience in the Christian life, I don't really want any more in terms of my relationship with Jesus or the excitement of living for God. I've I've had enough, thanks. (laughs) But if we want more, we have to step out of our control and hand over to God. And we have to give over to Him. I mean, don't you want there to be more different from you and your non-Christian friends than just that uh, your weekends are a bit busier because you go to church? I want them to be a bit more different between us and that. So the Holy Spirit, he took the loudmouth coward Simon and transformed him into Peter, the rock of the early church. He took Saul, the zealous Pharisee, who was willing to kill the church 
to stamp out the message of Jesus and turned him into Paul who was willing to be killed to proclaim the message of Jesus. The Holy Spirit took me and he took you and what might he do if we stopped quenching him? What risks might you and I take in the way we planned our futures? What risks might we take as we thought about what we give of our time and our money, of who we might tell the gospel to, of where we might serve at our weekends? How would our attitude to the fight against sin be changed if I really believed that the almighty power of God the Creator was living in me? In particular, let me just say a word about evangelism, given that we think about the Spirit bringing life. You see, if I'm really convinced that the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit of God is at work through the message of Jesus Christ, and that I was dead and he brought me to life, then there would be nobody I would think, well, they'll probably become a Christian, it'll be easy to tell them the Gospel. And there'd be nobody I'd think, they're absolutely a lost case, because everybody is equally dead, and everybody needs the power of God, and everybody is equally a viable target secular, confident, atheist, intellectual Londoners, hedonistic, couldn't care less party people in the office, everybody. People with their own religion they're very happy with. Everybody is dead. But the Spirit is powerful to bring anybody to life. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the awesome power of your Holy Spirit. And we do pray that as we learn more this weekend that you would and not just convince our minds, but convince our hearts so that we would uh, be willing to live bold, <coughs> reckless lives. And Father, we do pray that uh, we would do things that we would not do were your spirit not for real. And we pray, Father, that more and more our lives and our church community be, would be marked by the supernatural work of your spirit as we persevere through suffering, as we share the gospel uh, with those who we're afraid of, as we give generously of ourselves and our resources, and as we do all these things, trusting in your awesome power. Amen.